Welcome to our 190th webinar today. Uh, it is part two of active shooter events. We're going to dig down into prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement today. Uh, I'm Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global. I'll be your coordinator and master ceremonies today. Uh, we, uh, for those of you that are attending live and need to download the slides, you can go to www.safetyleaders.org. For those of you that are watching uh, on the web and want to go back to look at the resources and the articles um, that are posted, same, the same approach you would take. Uh, and those of you that are on the podcast, today we have less visuals and it'll be a, a much more of an audio sort of uh, program. I'd like to draw your attention to those of you that can see the screen and those on, on audio, that this is the second part of a two-part series on active shooter events. And uh, on June 16th, we had part one. Uh, it got incredibly rave reviews, primarily because it's such a crisis right now. And most organizations are really trying to understand what to do regarding this very terrible thing that's occurring, uh, these active assailant events. And we'll talk about the difference between the two. But also, we addressed our, our stress safety net on another webinar in March, March 3rd of 2022. And we've provided the links to those in the slide deck, and they'll be on the website for those of you that come back for uh, Audible. And this allows us to address bystander rescue care, fire law enforcement, EMS, and the emergency department dealing with the, the issues uh, at hand. Uh, what I'd like to do is address the fact that uh, we are going to build on what we call the four Ps, prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. We've mapped them against the different three, the three different focus areas that organizations or even families can focus on, leadership, practices, and technologies. For those of you that are on the podcast, we have a graphic that we've used. It's an ancient symbol for the Trinity that we've used for over 35 years that are three unbroken arcs because we think that believe that these are intrinsically interlocked and tightly coupled. The four Ps are prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. We believe that there are continuous feedback loops. Uh, having been uh, formally trained by uh, Dr. Deming, actually, of the Deming Prize in the Marshall Plan with Japan, I feel blessed to have had training with him and then to be able to work at the, at the feet of uh, Don Berwick, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, many that do lean, and this I concept of continuous process improvement. And so we graphically try to portray that and focus on the fact that um, prevention can be a continuous performance improvement loop. Preparedness, a state of readiness, can be continually improved, um, that we can uh, focus on protection and continue to learn from that. You'll hear a major feature of our discussion today with Michael Dorn, the, probably the leading expert in the world on active assailant events, um, that uh, that continuous and deliberative practices, Dr. Boats, one of our uh, one of our founders of MedTech, would say, is absolutely critical. And then learning from the rest of the programs, we're delighted today to have 
the voice of the patient from uh, Jennifer Dingman uh, uh, today. Michael Dorn will be our major speaker today, and we have wonderful reactors uh, in the form of Randy Steiner, who is the emergency uh, response expert at the University of California, Irvine, here where I am on the West Coast. Chief Bill Adcox, who is both um, a vice president at MD Anderson Cancer Center, but also the chief of police uh, there at Houston. Uh, Paul Cross, who's an assistant police uh, 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 chief uh, with uh, Chief Adcox, who is leading the effort there at MD Anderson. Dr. Greg Boats, who is uh, both a professor at the University of Texas uh, and MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, but also Stanford University Medical Center as an adjunct appointment. Uh, we want to draw your attention to Vicki King, who won't be speaking today, but draw your attention back to Vicki King, uh, who uh, shared with us some very wonderful insights in our on our 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 um, program our first program it's my real pleasure to introduce Jennifer Dingman Jenny is the founder of Pulse, a Persons United Limiting Substandard in Arison Healthcare. Uh, she's the co-founder of Pulse American Division. She's been a TMIT advocate team member for many years. She served on federal uh, uh, quality programs, multiple programs. She was a co she's been a co-author in the Journal of Patient Safety. I think most noteworthy, she's been a winner of the, the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for her tremendous work on the HACS Hospital Acquired Conditions. Uh, which was uh, a major pay for performance program for our US hospitals. And she's really been a steadfast supporter of our community of um, care, both caregivers, but consumers. And this program it has been built and developed and originally for the essential critical worker families. And we got such great uh, reviews that we expanded it to the general public. So Jennifer, we're really pleased to have you set our course today, um, help us with the compass heading of focusing on our families and on our consumers and, our, and, and the caregivers that are suffering through this uh, challenge. Jennifer? Thank you for having me, Dr. Denham. I'm really looking forward to today's program. With all of the shooting events going on in our country, it's so important that we understand and know what to do if we're ever involved in a situation like that. These webinars have done so much to help us, all of us. And I'm looking forward to today, and I want to thank everybody for being here. And I encourage you to please share the recording with your friends, colleagues, neighbors, and family members. This is so important. I'll give it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thanks, Jenny, and thanks for all you do. Uh, we want to draw your attention to our social media addresses, and we're making a, a diligent effort now to post more information there. For those that are with us for the first time, uh, our purpose, mission, and values uh, are important, and we try to establish uh, those that, for anyone new to us. Our purpose is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to, is to uh, accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. And our I care values, they spell I care, are integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. Like any organization, I'm certain that we fail in some areas, but we do our best to live those values. We also have no disclosures regarding 
um, regarding uh, financial interests. And um, this program that has been operating for more than 30 years has never been funded directly, indirect, indirectly or in affiliated fashion by pharmaceutical companies or device companies. Um, our background is that uh, over that period of time, uh, we've developed a network of 3,100 hospitals and medical centers in 3,000 communities and have over 300, over 500 subject matter experts that serve us and have served us over 39 years. I just want to draw your attention to our coronavirus care community of practice started with 40 experts. The experts on our phone call today and on our audio and the webinar are contributing experts to this. And we have a second webinar we started in March of 2020. We've now uh, done almost 30 webinars to focus on um, helping equip uh, the doctors, nurses, uh, security departments of our major medical centers, their families specifically, and essential critical workers in 17 industry sectors. Um, on our slide that for those of you that are viewing a slide, we have a number of experts that were contributors to our Discovery Channel films. We've uh, undertaken over since the coronavirus crisis, 56 90 minute broadcast and 29 um, survive and thrive training programs. And, uh, a num and you can go back to watch any of these. We'll be updating them and we are updating as of the first Thursday of the month, we'll be updating all of the latest on the BA5 Omicron uh, variant and what we need to know. Uh, uh, for those that are watching the slides, uh, each one of the thumbnail graphics represent a topic we've covered. Many of them still are pretty fresh, like testing and a number of other issues. We've undertaken a 1,000 household COVID family study and have been working with a number of uh, university students at major universities, uh, which we won't go into today because we have a lot that we want to cover. And we know many of you just want to focus on active shooter events or what we're calling active assailant events. Um, uh, a year before COVID started with Chief Adcox and Dr. Boats and the team at MD Anderson and a number including the University of California, Irvine, where Randy serves, um, we started a focus, a focus on approximately 30 topics. Uh, these 30 topics were those that were keeping our leaders up at night. And you'll see that workplace violence, active shooter, violent intruder, and deadly forces and incidents were one of those major areas. Domestic terrorism was what, where we ended up uh, starting to focus on these. Uh, I'm a retired radiation oncologist, but also a radiation safety officer and a laser safety officer. So um, uh, quite familiar with hazmat issues and those that pertain to accidents that occur in hospitals. And so domestic terrorism um, with uh, a chemical, biologic, ra radiologic, nuclear, and explosive weapons, which comes back to, to our active assailant. Our active assailant may not be just shooting a, an automatic weapon. They may be brandishing a knife they may be putting uh, uh, weaponizing explosives. They may be weaponizing vehicles. And that's where we talk about transportation vehicles. So all of these events, we must consider them in context. And I know, uh, Randy Steiner, that you'll help us kind of look at the view, you being responsible for an entire medical center and an entire university, uh, as well as uh, Chief Edcox and Assistant Chief uh, Cross uh, know that this is important. And the final one was violent acts against leadership. And at MD Anderson, when I was there, and since that time at Texas Medical Center, we've had intentional attacks 
to uh, 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 of leadership or to leadership. As a cancer doctor, um, I'm quite familiar with the anxiety and the anger that families can have regarding the treatment that they have for very serious illnesses like cancer. We'll also be mentioning, but we won't spend time on it this moment, left of boom, um, uh, uh, and right of boom or left of bang and right of bang. You'll hear from Mike Dorn today as he talks about um, th that concept and it's really the same. How do we move upstream before a bad event happens? Now, for those of you, we have a, we have a mixed audience today. We've got many hundreds of uh, pre-registrants. We have many of you that are gonna come back and watch later. We'll continue to update the area. We've published six uh, articles uh, in the, in the uh, Campus Safety Magazine, which is, uh, which is targeting uh, security departments, universities, medical centers, and faith-based organizations. There are three articles that are really pertinent here. And Chief Adcox, I, I'm looking forward to having your reactions uh, here uh, regarding the articles that we've written. And we'll, we'll, we'll cover them briefly in a quick reaction period. And then we'll move to Michael Dorn. And we have about an hour interview. So I'm watching the time very closely. But three articles, active shooter uh, events in healthcare, rapid response teams, and AED and bleeding control gear uh, are three articles that are pertinent to what we're talking about. What happened was that Chief Adcox, uh, Dr. Boats and I uh, recognized that there was an excellent article in the journal of uh, the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that uh, addressed the fact that run, hide, fight, which was developed uh, very rapidly by Homeland Security, rushed to the market very quickly to help organizations that were having uh, problems, did not have a, a, a perfect fit for those of us that run uh, medical centers operate patient safety, uh, uh, emergency response systems, and, and many of the areas where our, the gentlemen that are reacting today uh, do so. Rather that, that, than run, hide, fight, secure, preserve, and fight uh, was the nature of that article. Why was that article written and what are we really talking about in healthcare facilities? And again, we have a mixed audience. We've got families that are now watching our programs. We have um, of caregivers and essential workers. We've got medical center leaders and we have patient safety leaders. And so not any one of you will be completely satisfied with today because we can't cover everything in 90 minutes. And we're gonna run longer than that. We'll turn our, our respondents loose, our, our reactors loose early, uh, and our podcast will probably be broken up into uh, segments. And so you'll get to watch multiple segments. But responding to active shooter events in healthcare facilities um, are different than others because there are a number of issues. Active shooters' motives are usually much more personal and targeted. Uh, necessary security measures are often harder to undertake. Healthcare providers feel compelled to stay with patients. I'm not sure any of the caregivers I know or I worked with when I was in full-time practice would ever leave a patient if something bad was happening, who was on a respirator, who was uh, on life support or, or even vulnerable. Certain patients will die without continued life support in the ICUs and operating rooms. We can't turn off the energy. We can't turn the power off, which we might do uh, at, at a location where, uh, where the FBI or teams might uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, show up and work. Um, certain areas of the hospitals are easy to uh, are not easy to harden or evacuate. Most hospitals are organized vertically and rely heavily on elevators. Uh, we know that the, the uh, stairways are a risk, a plus and a minus. Emergency departments may lock down or shut down during an event. 
The violence could end in less than 10 minutes, but the healthcare delivery disruption could be much more prolonged. Many healthcare shootings occur at the entrance and outside of buildings, especially the stabbings, um, and healthcare facilities can't easily, uh, easily shut down. Um, uh, so the secure, preserve, fight uh, issues are the secure steps. So for medical centers would be to entail immediately securing essential life-sustaining treatment areas by barricading or securing all the access points. I won't read the slides for those of you that are watching, but our, our, our podcast group need to understand that secure means turning off non-essential lights and equipment, silencing phones and pagers, and try to make the area uh, uh, of care delivery secure. Preserve the second, the second uh, a focus area is uh, includes strategies that re reduce the risk for injuries, such as staying away from windows, doors, moving patients to shelter, and providing only the essential medical care required. And then fight, as most uh, most authors agree, fighting if an active shooter is a last resort, only when one's life or the lives of others are in immediate danger. And this is very different in in hospitals. And so I just want to draw your attention to the fact that the article that we wrote um, it, it tracks against and and maps against the uh, not against it in full support of the New England Journal article, but we uh, describe in more detail how the secure preserve fight uh, might work. It is uh, you can download it off of our webs the website uh, uh, safety at safetyleaders.org for this uh, program. But you can also uh, have all six of our articles in one PDF file or separate articles. Our second article was battling failure to rescue with rapid response teams. For those of you in the medical field, we all know that rapid response teams have been a dramatic, had dramatic improvement in patients that are deteriorating on the floor. The question is, can we apply the principles of a rapid response team in a hospital to active shooter events? And what would we need to do and what might be important? Um, and so learning from the 9-11 experience, you can define the current and specific risks to those uh, in your organization. Can you get care to any victim within three minutes? We know that uh, the lack of perfusion of the brain and vital organs after three minutes puts them in jeopardy and death. Uh, are AEDs and care supplies positioned within three minutes of victims? Uh, and do players from your various departments regularly, and this is really important practice together. Now, when we talk about the school shootings and overlap those in our, in our healthcare organizations, we find uh, there's a tremendous overlap. And you're gonna hear that from Michael Dorn, uh, as I said, what, the, the world's leader in understanding these active shooter events in schools. It's remarkable how many of the principles map directly to medical centers. So the, for those of you that think Michael Dorn is about schools, not about hospitals, pay close attention. You'll see an, an amazing overlap. The third article before we go to our reactors is inadequate placement of AEDs and bleeding control gear could cost you. Basically, if we don't have automatic def uh, automated uh, external defibrillators and stop the bleed kits within three minutes of delivering care, not three minutes walking distance, I mean three minutes of being able to go get the, the rescue equipment, assess the patient, and be able to, to uh, apply a shock to a shockable rhythm uh, of the heart or stop bleeding within three to five minutes. Uh, we won't be counting saves, we'll be counting graves. What we addressed in this article is there's enormous liability now because the standard of care is being elevated. And what we did in this article was map leadership systems, practice systems, and technology systems against uh, the, the placement 
uh, or compared them or applied them to automated external defibrillator and bleeding control gear uh, and the fact that we need to get those placed. And I know, uh, Randy, you are working on that diligently right now with your son and uh, Eagle Scout projects. And we've got 10, 10 life scouts to put them. My son's first Eagle project was putting a race rescue station in because of what we learned. So before we go uh, to, to Michael Dorn, what I'd like to do is uh, I'll stop sharing the screen and I'd like to come back to uh, 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 Chief Adcox. Uh, uh, do you wanna just kind of react and provide maybe a little bit more color or granularity to our articles? Although we're gonna dig into each topic uh, deeply, I, wanna, I, I, I want to just give you the opportunity to, to react, make a few statements regarding the articles that we wrote. And I went over them carefully. Again, they're timeless. Uh, there's very little, even though we've written them over the last three or four years, uh, that I would rewrite uh, because of uh, what, what's going on. Chief, and then we'll go to Paul, then we'll go to Randy, and then we'll go to Michael Doran. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Dan, and welcome everyone today. Um, as far as the articles go, it was very important for us to point out that, that uh, there are many different uh, approaches and methodologies and lots of overlap, but it was important to point out that each environment is unique and different, and you have to have an approach that really meets that environment. So Dr. Alex Eastman, who is, a, is our chief medical officer at UT System Police, is one of the authors of the New England Journal article that talked about the secure, preserve, and fight issue, and there were some key components to that. Now, what we actually used is avoid, deny, and defend, which is the same principles, but we believe it's a little bit earlier, a little bit easier to understand. It's also what the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is now officially talking about. So, you know, we want to avoid confusion, but the principles are exactly the same. We just want to make sure that as we continue, we get, we get real clear terminology. In a hospital setting, there are so many different circumstances to take into consideration, none less than the fact that you actually have healthcare providers who are not going to leave someone to die. So we wanted to make sure we dealt with that. The other piece of it was, was how do you get the rapid response teams in that are coming behind the police personnel going in? Because remember, in a, um, in a situation like this, the police are gonna go and they're gonna stop the killing. That means they're gonna go and they're gonna try and neutralize that, uh, that the shooter. That's the number one priority. So they'll have to get past people that are injured. That might be kind of counterintuitive, but they have to do that. After they stop the killing, they're gonna, they're gonna stop the dying. That means they're gonna to have to see what they can do to go back now. And to, that's where the rapid response team is. But there are uniqueness to hospitals. These are gonna almost always be multi-story facilities. They're always gonna have other types of, of issues in play. So we wanna be able to talk about how do you get your rapid response teams in? A lot of that's coordination. A lot of that is how you're gonna not be stationing those individuals that are injured in your hospital and in your emergency rooms. You're gonna get them moved out and you're gonna to have to have that, the, 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 the triage in place and then the, the transports to those other hospitals. And you also have to realize that hospitals, they're gonna be down for a while. Any hospital that experiences a, a massive uh, shooting event is gonna be out of, uh, out of the commission for quite a, quite a while. So there's a lot of uniqueness that go into it. And that's really the reason that we, we wanted to make sure that we had, we had done that. And then the third piece is really is in the preparedness and, and how you would station your, your equipment, whether it's your stop the bleed kits, et cetera, and then how, how do people are trained and how do they have access to that? So uh, it was important for us to focus in on hospitals, important for us to take a look at what can be done in, in those environments. Uh, 
And, and so I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. And I just want to, and I will say this maybe two or three times, um, we, we've been studying this active shooter, active assailant, uh, lethal, lethal uh, incident or lethal threat incident area very carefully. I want to remind everyone when you post information that the bad guys are doing their homework they will likely watch this webinar. So we are not telling anybody any, any specific tactical issues that might put our folks in danger. I just wanna uh, remind us, and Paul, as you react, and as you react, Randy, nothing, we don't wanna give the bad guys any information. What we're gonna focus on is our training, our, focus, our communication and things that will not give them an edge. So anything you wanna add, Paul, I'm gonna give you each of you an opportunity to react to prevention to the four Ps. We're gonna to listen to Michael Doran about schools and you'll see the overlap to medical centers. You're gonna to get to react to prevention, preparedness, uh, protection and performance improvement. So we'll give you that opportunity. Anything you wanna to add to what the chief said, uh, Paul? Well, there's uniqueness with healthcare facilities as we mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, everybody in their life, healthcare facilities are kind of a whole society destination in that everyone, some, some point in their life will go to a healthcare facility. Not everyone goes to a sporting event. Not everyone goes to the movie theater. Uh, not everyone goes to the mall. So we are unique in healthcare facilities in that we will eventually see everyone. And as we know, society uh, is, is, is made up of good people and bad people. So that makes healthcare facilities unique in that we must prepare for a high risk, low impact, I mean, a, a high probability that something will happen like that. Um, in addition to that, uh, what's very unique about the healthcare facilities is, as you mentioned earlier, uh, most of the time, people who attack active shooters or hostile intruders that attack healthcare facilities have a target in mind. In other words, they're looking for one person. So we teach our people that that will inform you whether it's better to run, hide, fight, or avoid, deny, defend, because you know for a fact, okay, I'm in a healthcare facility, there's a great probability this person is looking for a specific clinician. So I just wanted to make those two points about healthcare facilities. Fantastic. Those are great points, the targeted issue. And I know Anderson, you all are just doing an amazing job on de-escalation and understanding the nature of uh, some of these assailants. Uh, uh, Randy, anything you want to add? Uh, and then we'll jump into Michael Dorn and give all of you an ample opportunity to react to each of the four areas. I disagree with uh, both Chief said that's you know really it's the preparedness and training piece of this is so important and you know giving people you know the tools and the the training that they need to distinguish you know this specific incident and and how to react yeah there's a, a good question in Q and A about you know things like what happens when a fire alarm is pulled you know and how how to how to you know our training to respond to a fire alarm plays right into the the potential for for an assailant and that's they're very those are difficult questions it's really hard you know there's no good answer for that but somewhere it lies in you know how do we train people what kind of common sense can we give people to you know when they are in a situation like this where they're aware of an active shooter or some kind of violent assailant occurring in the in their their facility you know how to respond appropriately and and you know keep themselves safe um, you know, which exits to use, how to be aware of their surroundings, you know, the things where we kind of teach people in these active assailant trainings. 
and just keep hammering that home to say that each of these situations is there's no playbook for an active shooter situation. They're all unique situations. They're all you know completely different in every every aspect. So having to you know train people into how to respond to the the specifics of that situation is is really important, I think, and, and keeping that in people's minds that there isn't a one size fits all response to an active assailant. You have to, you know, take each situation as it occurs. And if you find yourself in that situation, sit, take a moment, think, and, you know, figure out what the, what the, the proper um, action is that you need to take to protect yourself. So getting that in people's heads. Thank you for bringing that up, Randy. And, you know, the thing that is, uh, so I shared with you gentlemen in the green room before we started uh, that we had a life-threatening event with my son last night here at a beach. We had a faith-based uh, athletes uh, event that my son and I were hosting. Uh, and he had a very bad choking incident right next to me. And we spend hour after hour after hour training people in med tech, the eight leading causes of death. And one of them is to teach the Heimlich maneuver. I still can't believe how calm I was, uh, you know, giving him back blows, couldn't dislodge uh, the, the piece of steak that was caught in his airway. Uh, and then had to do uh, the multiple thrusts. And then, uh, you know, we moved on and had the event. But I can tell you that I'm sure that I would have been more paralyzed, even though I'm a physician, had we not spent so much time with deliberative practice. And so my pitch to anybody is, and I know, Randy, you are a teacher of Stop the Bleed. You are a teacher of CPR. You teach emergency preparedness and you're hands-on. What an important thing for all of us to do, because we never know when it's going to help with our own or their own family. And that happened to me last night. Well, listen, I, I'm going to now jump right in to uh, Michael Doran. This was pre-recorded. Uh, Michael has been so generous with his time uh, and helping us. And I think you will enjoy it. I just finished editing it about a few minutes ago. And, um, and we will now be applying the principles uh, and discussing principles that have enormous crossover from schools to faith-based organizations to uh, uh, universities and um, and to schools. So uh, I'm I'm going to kind of play that tape now and um, look forward to you all enjoying it. And I'll stop it after we finish prevention in each area. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today and covering this area regarding active shooter events and these lethal force uh, incidents or events. One of the things that you and, I, you and I have talked about is the fact that we're really at the beginning of the beginning of understanding them. The numbers are small. There really aren't best practices established. And I want you to kind of elaborate on perhaps the fact that we've got definitions that are evolving and legal terms that might be in court may be different than our performance improvement experts, but that we really are at the beginning of the beginning. And you're sharing with us as one of the experts out there observations, and that these are your observations of what's going on. And, uh, and we'll go through the four Ps of uh, prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement, which are is a framework we use in quality improvement to prevent medical errors. We'll apply it to this, although we know the jargon may be different, and we'll just kind of work through that. But we're very grateful, Michael, for you to share your time with us. Had it not been for your and my conversation back in 2015, we would not have our MedTAC program tackling the eight leading causes of preventable emergency death. And we're, we're so grateful for your time. So we'll just kick off right now. We've already covered your bio and your wonderful background. Um, 
Michael, as we talk about uh, prevention of these active shooter events, and we talk about three categories, leadership practices and technologies, First off, what can leaders do or what are you seeing out there that leaders can do in the area of prevention? I say the first and most important thing is to be sure that they're doing what they're doing based on some form of structured assessment process and being very careful. We are finding that there are a lot of very popular things that are either ineffective or can actually increase casualties, increase the chances of having an attack that is successfully able to be carried out. And then what happens is you get hit twice. You have this tragedy and then in litigation, uh, you get clobbered because what you did in you know best intentions, you spent three things that school officials and people in other organizations have very limited amounts of, and that's time energy and budget okay and so you want to be sure that the things you're putting time energy and money into are actually have some evidence of efficacy which is difficult because as you mentioned we don't really have as much data as a lot of people think i've worked 23 k-12 shootings of two very similar types active assailant events or targeted school shootings which are both very similar in that they're planned events. There are some technical differences between those two as far as definition, but they're all planned school shootings or school attacks with multiple types of weapons. And I tell people, there are very few people in this country that have worked this volume of them. You know, there are just probably not even four or five people in the country that have worked that many. And I think any of us that have will tell you that Though there are some similarities, there's more difference between the events than there are similarities. And for that reason, a lot of the things that are very popular out there actually can be quite counterproductive. So first of all, look at what's out there to tell us that something works. Uh, Some examples on the prevention side, uh, there are some excellent, you mentioned technologies, so some great technologies that we didn't have at least in the level that schools and other organizations could typically afford. If you weren't the federal government, you know, the U.S. military or the CIA, you couldn't afford some of the technologies to prevent incidents that we have today, such as some of the analytic camera systems, the access control systems, and so forth, that can be used to prevent. Um, so we've got some real good opportunities there. We're not against the idea of, you know, using physical security. It's very important. But I'll tell you, 41 years in the field, having personally averted imminent planned shootings on multiple occasions and an imminent planned bombing, that what I've seen the most in the field are the the behavioral approaches, such as in the case of school student threat assessment and management, self-harm prevention. And we always look for opportunities, and I think everybody should for any kind of organization, but especially true of schools, if you can get a daily benefit from a prevention approach that is, in other words, it's not only helpful for an active assailant event, that, that's a win, right? So, for example, student supervision is extremely important to prevent homicide in K-12 schools, the most common types of homicide, and it can reduce casualties, as we have seen, in active shooter events, because if staff 
have line of sight and the ability to see and hear students, they can get them to shelter quicker, quickly if a tornado or active assailant, fire, whatever type of emergency, they can detect the students having a medical emergency quicker. But on the prevention side, our most common uh, precursors to school homicides uh, involve what's known as interpersonal conflict. For middle and high schools, that's fights. Number of fights is one of your most accurate predictors that you'll experience a shooting, edge weapons assault, so forth. So student supervision is a great prevention tool for a whole range of things. Vaping is a huge problem in our schools. Um, and, you know, so that's something that you can reduce expulsions. You can reduce suspensions of students while you're preventing incidents and not just that one type of incident that though catastrophic and though we hear the most about it is actually one of the rarest forms of fatalities on U.S. K-12 campuses. Does that make sense? It sure does. And so, uh, Michael, as we think about leadership, since we're at the beginning of the beginning, and I love your the, the framework you use, we tend to use time, talent, and treasure, or triple P, which are very yeah. similar. When uh, leaders need right now, because we're at the beginning of the beginning, to get engaged, right? To see what works, to get engaged. There's nothing off the shelf this moment that, that, that they can just delegate and walk away and say there's a program as we understand it. As we think about uh, leakage and people in retrospect say that they, they, they saw, they could have seen it coming, how does social media play? And are there, are there leading practices or those that are pioneering the way of monitoring social media uh, to be able to identify early warning? So, there's some benefits to that. What we see the most, though, is school districts typically don't have the personnel to follow through. So uh, as an example, one of the big problems the Soviet Union had with their intelligence and counterintelligence operations, they gathered so much information, they couldn't process it all. And to some extent, that's obviously happened with us. The 9-11 attack is an example. And one of the things that we hear the most is unless a district has adequate personnel tasked to follow through, the chances are high that you're gonna get all these alerts, but you can't track them all down to see. You know, the important question is not whether somebody made a threat as much as the key is, do they pose a threat? And if they do, what do we do to mitigate or you know, uh, protect people from that threat? Often others, uh, the person who communicate for people. And so we do with our large districts, uh, and we actually picked this up from a client, uh, Orange County Schools in, in uh, Orlando, Florida. Uh, personally, I'd never thought about it before, but one of the things that they ran the idea by us during assessment, we thought it was a great idea, and we now have recommended it by, and it's been adopted by a number of our very large school districts, you know, is what we call protective intelligence personnel. These are people who have training and background to investigate social media threats, things on the internet. There are some excellent training programs. If you have somebody post a picture of a rifle and that's of concern, you can do searches to determine if that picture came from a, a magazine, you know, two years ago, or it's not in the public domain. So that's more likely that that individual really does have a rifle. Does that make sense? A lot of times you see somebody post, you know, they've got a picture of a gun on their social media posts, but you find out that came from Sports Appeal magazine three years ago. So that tells you that's that's not an original picture. Does that make sense? So yes. 
those technologies can be a benefit if we have, it goes back to time, energy, money. So if you're a school district of 3,000 students, that's probably not a good place to park your time, energy, money versus one of these districts like some of our clients with, you know, uh, you know, 200 schools, 150 schools, so forth. Does that make sense? It, it, it sure does. What about the, the early warning systems that we've seen periodically pop up where uh, if you see something, say something, can do it over text much more anonymously than reporting it on a web page or by an email because no one wants to be identified. Um, how are those systems working in terms of prevention that using text or using maybe some more anonymous means of notification? Yeah, those can be exceptionally effective. When I became a school police chief in 1989, uh, we already had, they already had a 24-7 uh, uh, live dispatch, right? And so we started advertising that because back then with the technology, we couldn't tell who was calling us. You know, you couldn't look down and see the phone number. So we put posters up all over. We communicated with the public to say, look, you can report concerns 24 hours a day anonymously, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And right off the top of my head, I can remember one absolutely imminent shooting that we were able to avert. We received multiple calls that there would be a shooting at a championship basketball game. We had uh, probably triple the number of officers that we would normally have had. And four of my officers and deputies down three individuals who were about to open fire into a crowd. Uh, it was a gang-related situation. They, the gang members wanted to retaliate against a non-gang member. And they had a sawed-off shotgun. And they had two nine-millimeter handguns. They literally were rolling down their tinted windows and, and chambering rounds and the pistols when we took them down. And they absolutely stopped that shooting. And that was based on, in the old technology, right? And so I helped the state of Georgia set up the first internet reporting system, uh, which they still maintain, and that has stopped bombings and shootings as well. So those technologies are very common. Most school districts now have them. Many non-public schools have them. And as long as we're paying attention to those and have a good mechanism to receive the information, act on it, uh, they can be very effective. Um, one of the Big issues there, though, is social marketing. There's a difference between having those and educating students and the public on when and how to use them um, to make people aware of, you know, what they're there for, uh, you know, what type of information, uh, you know, is helpful to get. Because one disadvantage of the anonymous reporting systems is if they don't give us enough information that's all you have. And so people need to know, okay, you can report this anonymously if you want, but be sure to give us enough information to act on because it is common sometimes to get tips that don't have enough specificity to them to help you evaluate what the situation really is. Does that make sense? But, but yeah, that limitation noted and is, and can be addressed and is addressed well in a good system. They're, they're a very good place to park time, energy, and budget. Fantastic. So as we look at wrapping up prevention as the topic, it sounds to me like we really need to get our leaders to get personally invested in time, talent, treasure, uh, or time, energy, budget, whatever verbiage they want to use, but to get engaged 
and to be recognizing that there may be practices that are evolving that might be helpful to them and that there are technologies also that are evolving we're at the beginning of the beginning of the science really stabilizing but it sounds like engagement will pay off in prevention fair statement it is but one important caution and i'll have this for other areas like preparedness uh be very beware the snake oil salesman because there is a there are billions being spent on technologies that do not work. So we've evaluated several systems that are supposed to, and they have very convincing videos, you know, examples, and they'll come in and they'll do live demonstrations that are it's like watching a magician with cards, you know. Um, but the systems just don't work. Um, so there are some very expensive systems that supposedly you can screen massive numbers of people. They can push baby buggies through the detection unit, backpacks, purses, and supposedly they will not alert on anything but a firearm or some knives. Um, so far, none of those technologies work. Um, they, there are just many problems with them. One that we recently evaluated is extraordinarily expensive, and it, uh, it, it has no health certifications whatsoever. There's no testing, which is a very basic thing for things like metal detectors, there are specific testing standards to show that it won't interfere with a pacemaker or any other type of medical device. Um, and as you know, and being a physician, there's more and more of that, you know, being used these days. And, you know, when you see somebody proposing that a school district spend $50 million on detection units at number one, can't work because the way they describe the technology. So they'll say that they have a library of images of guns. And when we ask how many guns, they'll say 200. Well, there are 20 to 30,000 different firearms yeah, out exactly. there. Exactly. You know, right. and so they're not going to detect, you know, probably what you're going to encounter in many cases. Um, and, and we've seen this with analytic camera systems and some work, but they're not as effective at prevention. So a good example there are systems that are supposed to reliably detect a visible firearm. So I pull a gun in a school library, it's gonna detect that, send a message. I'd rather have video analytics that help me detect danger before that gun is pulled. So one, there are questions again about the, just the basic reliability about the systems. They're typically extremely expensive. So you get situations where they've got two cameras at a school that have that out of 110 cameras or 10 cameras out of 110. And then the incident occurs where there's no, you're not using that analytic. Now, meanwhile, good smart camera system will have with it free analytic software that's much more valuable. Things like loitering detection. If somebody, uh, we had a hostage situation in elementary school here in Georgia where the attacker hid outside, he, he was to the side of the front entryway and he waited till a parent came in, buzzed in, and then he tailgated, went in and pulled, he had several guns and several hundred rounds of ammunition, well, loitering detection would have helped them pick him up and it will pull up the visual and you look and say, wait a minute, who's that guy with a ski mask right there? Fence climbing detection, person down detection, running detection. There are a lot of analytics quite reliable. People focus a lot on facial recognition uh, and that's been somewhat controversial, but there are actually a lot of very solid, very valuable preventive camera technology analytic systems out there now. Electronic hall passes are a tremendously uh, valuable uh, investment. 
So we see people spending just phenomenal sums of money for things that don't even work that they're going to get sued for. And for a fraction of that cost, they could put in really good analytic camera systems. They could put in electronic hall pass systems. And again, these are things that help with many other problems, not just school shootings. So be sure you vet. Don't, don't ever take a vendor's word for it. And if they get offended, if you ask them, run. Because the better what they have is, the more forthright they'll be with you. They'll tell you its limitations. Uh, they won't get offended if you ask questions. So vet the technology because the lawyers will definitely do that. That's that. This comes up a lot in school safety malpractice litigation, and you don't want to be in the position to have spent thirty or forty million dollars or a million dollars, whatever that is, on something that doesn't work, and find that out when you're in the middle of a federal civil action. So I'm. We'll stop there, and uh, I'm going to ask Chief Adcox to comment. I will let you know that uh, we're going to go through the other three P's, and I've got a graphic up for those that are on the podcast. Uh, addressing, you'll, you'll see some of the topics, uh, uh, reactors that we will, that uh, Michael will talk about. So I want to get your reactions to some of the prevention, but you'll also see prevention of harm and preparedness and protection, that being uh, placement of rescue stations and making sure that everybody knows what to do with severe bleeding, which is the, the major cause of death after these uh, uh, terrible, uh, terrible uh, uh, events. But uh, Chief uh, uh, Adcox, uh, uh, let me ask you, uh, to just react to what Michael had said about prevention, and then we'll talk about protection uh, and the barriers and number of things in the next topic uh, round and give each one of you, Chief, you, and then Paul, and then uh, Randy, an opportunity just to add anything you want to to what Michael just said. Well, thank you again, Dr. Denham. I, I do think that, that Mike is, uh, is spot on. Uh, a couple of things that I, I would like to, to uh, talk about that he talked about was the issue of prevention in terms of behavior, what you're seeing in advance, leakage, advance notice of what may be coming down the pipe. And to tell you, to tell you the truth, uh, we have a saying of see something, say something, but we don't do a good job of telling people, you know, what, what you see, what it is that you're seeing might be of a concern. And then to say something, well, say something to who and how. And, and, and that's where he talked about anonymous reporting and not getting enough information and so forth. So we've got to do a better job of that. So communication is going to be a big key there. But it all goes back to education and awareness. And it goes back to consistently training. There's a lot of turnover in hospitals, but there's a tremendous lot of turnover in schools. I mean, every year there's graduations and teachers are coming and people are being promoted. So you, so you cannot do a one and done training. So when you educate and you train, you've got to continuously do that. The second piece, and I'll turn it over to, to you and the other panelists, is uh, this, this whole issue around, um, so first off, you talked about the, about, about the see something, say something. The, the other issue is around these, these preventative equipment and the, the, the salespeople out there and what they're bringing to the table. Oftentimes, you're going to get a good, a good intention executive, a good intention person and a board, school board, hospital board, executive vice president or something that's going to be Somebody's going to talk in their ear and they're going to think that there's something out there that might be a great answer to something. It's really important that you have the expertise and you have the background and the, and the, uh, uh, the research in place to be able to say, listen, here's what a real holistic program looks like. We have to have these things in place and this is what to look for in these types of equipment because the equipment is could be oftentimes cost prohibitive 
and not bring the value that people think or been told that it will bring. So it's, it's level setting our expectations with the right approach, I think is very critical as we're looking at prevention. Uh, Fantastic, so great comments, Chief, great comments. Uh, Paul, your thoughts, anything you wanna to add to Chief? Sure, well, you know, Michael was talking about companies coming with uh, these different gimmicks. Uh, we oftentimes need to teach and we continue to teach uh, doing what you're comfortable with. Um, every situation is unique. I, I like to tell the story of David and Goliath. You know, uh, David had access to swords and other weapons, but what did he choose? He chose what he was comfortable with, a slingshot that he knew he was proficient with. So we, we've got to continue to harp on that, use what's best for your environment. Oftentimes these companies come in with stuff that is not a good fit for the environment that they're trying to sell it to. And we need to continue to remind ourselves, practice, with what we're good at. Great, many thanks. Uh, Randy, your thoughts. And then we'll, and then what I think we'll do is we'll jump into protection and performance improvements so you guys can react to, to the final thoughts of Michael and we'll uh, uh, wrap up on time. Go ahead, Randy. Uh, just in terms of, of technology, I think the, the, the best prevention technology we have is, is the eyes of the people that exist in the areas that we are in. And you know, giving people the 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 resources they need, the tools they need to you know understand you know what's out of place, and and you know really that the you know the basis of all this, the technology and everything is that's that's great, but you know without somebody having the 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 feeling that something is off or something is wrong, and then having the resources to report that and, you know, training people that it's better to err on the side of caution. And, you know, if it's a nothing burger, it's a nothing burger, but, you know, one of those, those, those tips or those observations by somebody, you know, may save lives or maybe a Could thing. Could be everything. Yeah. Happening. Yeah. So having that, that training and, and, and then providing those resources to allow people to say, Hey, I don't feel right about this. And how do I get this to somebody? And then when they do making sure that those, those, concerns are taken seriously and acted upon. Great, great, Randy. Thank you. So what we'll do is we'll we'll go back to Michael and we'll cover the the, the next two P's and um, stand by. Here we go. Let's uh, let's move to preparedness. And because of the fact that we're at the beginning of the beginning of really understanding the you know the dynamics of all of this uh, I'm presuming that our leaders still need to be really engaged, personally engaged of where they put their time, talent, and treasure in preparedness. So as, as we think about events that we need to be prepared for happening, things like uh, inside door locks in, in, the, in the classrooms or in medical centers, being able to address the door locks so that uh, so that a, a, an active shooter can and a assail, assailant can't get into a room where we have people. Can you kind of walk through preparedness? So we, we tried to prevent the events, but there's an event happening. What are the things in terms of our practices? And again, they're evolving and not best yet. They're leading practices, but and the technologies that we can tackle when we know an event's going to happen. So First of all, the three T's are even more important here because this is where we're seeing the most, perhaps the more dangerous types of approaches. So 
uh, run, hide, fight was developed by in Houston, the local emergency management agency under a federal grant and a video was kind of pushed out ahead of time in response to a couple of major shootings. And one of the things we do, we've assessed over 8,500 K-12 schools. And one of the things we do is we run live real-time one-on-one simulations, similar to police officers with shoot, don't shoot simulators, but more just verbal responses. Okay. And we typically show a control video. We screen for trauma, explain what we need the person to do. And then we typically use six combination, six scenarios, combination of video and audio scenarios. And for scoring purposes, they have 30 seconds to tell us what they would do for that emergency situation. And then we score the responses and 30 seconds is actually longer than we often have. Uh, contrary to the popular perception, most of the active shooter events that, that I work out of the 23, and to be clear, we don't have video footage of all of them. So sometimes we don't know how long they lasted, but I'll tell you that I feel pretty confident that somewhere probably around 70 to 75% of the people shot in those 23 events have been shot in under 60 seconds, most under 30 seconds. So, you, you garbled a little bit there. Can oh, you restate that last, uh, that last sentence? So 75% yes, of the 23 that you've studied, the people have been shot within how long? So I'd say that 70 to 75%, this is just a ballpark guess of the people who've been shot in those 23 attacks, which includes some of the most deadly in U.S. history, uh, they've been shot in the first 60 seconds. Most of the people are shot very quickly from the time the gun is produced, okay? I work cases where four or five people are shot in 12 seconds, 16 seconds, 42 seconds. Uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas attack the commission report on that based on video footage, 24 people were shot in the first 120 seconds of the event. 120 uh, seconds, you broke up a little bit again. Yeah, in that case, the first 24 victims were shot in 120 seconds, okay? Wow. The, we did a frame-by-frame -frame evaluation of the first mosque shooting in New Zealand, the first of the two shootings he carried out. I'm trying to remember the numbers. I believe it was 49, I think it was 43 victims he shot in 49 seconds. Now, the shooting went on for 15 minutes, but that was that was him making sure everybody was dead. But in terms of reaction, you know, the longest any of those victims probably had was on the outside would have been 49 seconds. Most had 10, 15 seconds, very fast. And so it's important to understand that. And what we're seeing is a lot of gadgets, a lot of technologies that these panic button systems that are $30,000, $40,000 per school per year, and they've, they've got a very, some very flawed features to them. So one of them that we're very concerned about, number one, it's Bluetooth-based, so it's not reliable for life safety. It's extremely expensive compared to better systems that are cheaper and do a whole lot more. But it, it tells you where there's an emergency, where that staff member is, who they are, that's it. So you have to remember how many times to press it under stress, which is not sound. And then all it tells you is when and where. For less money, you can buy a system that also has audio and a micro camera, like a police officer's body cam. So if that teacher presses it, they don't have to count how many times they press it. It's not based strictly on Bluetooth, so it's more reliable and you've got sound and video of what's happening. So if it's a hostage situation, you know not to enter the room, you know not to come in over the intercom or anything like that. You listen and you look and you react. If a teacher sees somebody uh, out of the window 
200 yards away, getting out of a car with a gun, headed to a different wing. Instead of sending a bunch of your, say you have two police officers on campus, instead of them losing two to three minutes running to the wrong location, you're able to find out we, the alert came from here, but I need to go there. You know, if it's a medical emergency, the teacher can talk while they're giving CPR, for example. Uh, you know, so there are better systems that are and much less expensive. So that's another caution we give. The typically the active shooter training programs that we're seeing consistently people score worse on simulations uh, than people with no training whatsoever, whatsoever. And we've seen these fail repeatedly in school shootings and actually increase casualties with $130 million paid out thus far just for two of the most popular programs. Uh, and, and that's just, by the way, for four shootings. It's $130 million paid out by school and law enforcement agencies over just a few of those shootings now, I don't want to make and that money like was paid. That money was paid through litigation. Be yeah, that's out of court settlements, too. This is not a runaway yeah. jury so, type so, situation. So those organizations had these systems and they still paid out one hundred and thirty four million dollars in civil settlements. So what I would say is that because they use these training approaches, they had increased casualties. OK, and when you have more people killed and injured, you're going to have a higher you know, typically higher settlement amounts. And between just a few of these shootings where they had recently done the training, and there's good indications, if not very solid, that it increased rather than decreased casualties because they did the training, you've got a total of over 130 million paid out, over 50 people shot in just four school shootings. Uh, so, let me, those... so, so I know our audience is going to say, so what do they do? So, you know, the preparedness where do they put their triple T given yeah. that some of the programs might even increase their liability? Cause I could hear some say, well, then I won't do anything because I'm going to increase my liability. What, what Honestly, in the, in the case of that, you'd be better off in my opinion, not to do the current active shooter training. There's some exceptions. There are, uh, we wrote a, a web training program for president Obama's administration for the 2013 white house school safety initiative. It's a free online course through the U S department of Homeland security IS360. It's the IS360 course free on the FEMA website. Now that is a strategic level training. So it's it's not like what the teacher goes through, but it'll help you avoid those type of what, what happens is what we call training scars. They accidentally teach things. There's a difference in between what I say and what the student retains. So for example, with those types of training, anybody with a gun between 25 and 50% of educators run through those training programs and the more training they have, the worse they perform. They'll attack anybody depicted with a gun. So they'll attack a student depicted threatening suicide with a cocked pistol to their head, finger on the trigger, a far more common scenario than an active shooter. They'll, and we've had people killed doing these things. We've had people killed um, trying to use active shooter approaches for a, a hostage taker where they created a shooting where there probably wouldn't have been one. We've had uh, over a dozen educators killed now and a student because, you know, doing those things in the wrong situation. It wasn't an active shooter event. So uh, there is uh, at least one web company we write programs for. We don't receive royalties for these, but safe schools. Uh, we've written their active shooter training programs that avoids these pitfalls. Many school districts use it. It's free. It's not something if they've got that system. Called safe, safe schools. Yes, it's safe schools. Uh, okay. Parent company's called Vector. 
a lot of universities use it. We're, uh, we've written their active shooter programs for higher ed and K-12. And we just finished a, a secondary student for high school students uh, training course that they roll out this fall. And we're about to update the adult, you know, the staff courses for them. And those courses are based on our experience with the simulations. We've run over 9,000 simulations in four schools in 45 states. So they specifically cover the accidental operant conditioning that we're seeing in so many of these programs. Uh, next week, I present at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and that's what I'm doing there. Me and another uh, one of our analysts are going to be explaining what we're seeing so the federal government can look at, okay, how do we improve these programs? Because the programs that we've seen out there thus far are, are just, they, they have saved some lives in some shootings, but by and large, people perform worse than without them. And so that's another caution to be very careful because you will commonly see these programs referred to as best practice. And other than the Stop the Bleed program, as we've talked about, that's the only that's the only practice I know of in the whole arena of active shooters that would meet the standard of what a best practice means in federal court litigation. So, um, and let so, me jump in there and just say, yeah. and because of the contribution that you've made to us, if somebody is in cardiac arrest from loss of blood or in cardiac arrest because of the stressful event, I'm, you know, we are recommending the American uh, Heart Association's um, uh, uh, basic life support training, and we do that as part of our MedTech program, right. uh, you know, as well. And we think that is as legitimate as uh, the Stop the Bleed with the American College of Surgeons. But I know you're referring to the traumatic events from the active shooter. Uh, uh, and, but well, so and beyond I, that, though, beyond to your yeah, to your point. So I, I, I usually more broadly say it is hemorrhage control. Okay, yeah. and and. But again, I want to point this out, and you know this, that it, it does go beyond active shooting. One of the things we like about those, those programs is it saves lives in tornadoes. It, I had a case where a young lady had her leg cut off. Uh, she lost a leg at a Catholic school down in Florida, and they were able to save her life, which was remarkable. She, she, lost, she had her leg just about completely cut off uh, when she was pinned to a column by a, a, a parent who panicked and had her car in reverse, a grandparent and hit the gas and pinned her to a cement column. And that girl's alive today because they knew what to do. So, you know, there, there are a lot of situations. Most people think that school violence is our leading cause of death and it is not for K-12 school. Right. Um, and active shooter events are way down the list when they it comes really to sexual loss of life. So, However, it's interesting that uh, for the first time in 60 years, the, the, uh, the, the cause of death in young people uh, was motor vehicle accidents, and now it's it's gunshot wounds. And these are far outside of the active shooter events at schools. It's just across the board. So, so uh, severe bleeding control is important. So as we finish up on preparedness, um, there are two things. One thing is we, as you know, we really believe and we teach the Stop the Bleed program, and we think everybody all good Samaritans and every family should learn Stop the Bleed and actually have Stop the Bleed kits of tourniquets, uh, coagulation gauze, wound packing gauze, a pin to write on the tourniquet uh, and Israeli bandages. And we uh, we really promote those for the rescue stations that we're putting up uh, up and down Southern California and in some multiple states, but also schools and 
churches. The second thing is we need that we really recommend that everybody get CPR and BLS training, especially in the light of COVID, because the BLS training actually can help two people do CPR and using a HEPA filter on the mask can really reduce the chance of getting COVID from somebody. We know that women are 27% less likely to get CPR because we're afraid of touching their breast and their chest. We also yeah. know uh, that, uh, that certain minority groups uh, are also less likely uh, to, uh, to have CPR. So as we kind of think about preparedness, that training is one issue. But then the other is recurrent training or what Dr. Boats would share right now is deliberative practice. We know the studies of the stop the bleed trainees that have been have been evaluated a year after that that this is a perishable skill, even though they're learning three things that sure. recurrent training we think is super valuable. Um, and that that that's where some of that triple T could be placed. And uh, so so let's move to protection. So so we talked about trying to prevent these events and we talked about being ready, a state of readiness for them with training and also whatever technologies can be used. What about protection when the event is occurring? And um, can you react to some of the news headlines regarding the door locks uh, on uh, classroom doors? And our healthcare audience is especially interested in what we do because we, many of our caregivers are not gonna leave a patient in the room to go evacuate. They're gonna stay there to take care of that patient. What about doors and barriers and that kind of thing in our organizations? So first, real quickly, I wanna kind of elaborate just briefly on what you that segment you just said, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about what you feel uh, is, is recommended. We encourage that with our schools and, you know, to have the training, have the equipment. Uh, here in Georgia, the uh, state pays for the training and equipment for all school bus drivers for public schools. And That's great. I, I didn't know that until I found out. I had a client that the Atlanta public school system wanted to do it. And I talked to one of my analysts, he said, well, the state pays for that. You know, so some of this is just getting information out like you're trying to do today. But it, it is, again, I'll state this again. It's the only thing that I have seen. I've been doing this 41 years. I testify routinely on some of the largest uh, civil actions relating to school safety. Cases I'm working right now, I'm almost certain are the biggest lawsuits ever in the history of for U.S. school safety. Wow. In the billions. And so I, I don't make statements like this lightly. If I say something like I'm about to say, I feel like I can back it up in a federal civil action when challenged by highly skilled attorneys with expert witnesses that they've retained. And I, I've not seen anything that I feel there's substantive evidence of efficacy in reducing death from active shooter events that I would call best practice aside what you just described. And I just want to say quickly, I agree with that. Now, when you talk about the event. One of the things that's wrong with Run, Hide, Fight and a lot of these other programs is they're all based on what the Marine Corps calls being right of bang. That means the Marines get ambushed and then they got a, they've been taking casualties and they're in a gunfight or an IED has gone off while they're on patrol. And they develop what they call the Combat Hunter Program, which kind of retaught some lessons our troops learned in Vietnam and added a whole bunch to it uh, using a bunch of very interesting subject matter experts. And, you know, the goal was to get Marines to be able to react what they call left of bang. Right of bang is reacting like run, hide, fight. What do you do once you see a gun, hear a gun, or are told that someone's firing a gun? 
versus left of bang would be the examples I gave with the analytic cameras. The analytic camera picks up a person climbing a fence, or in many places, you cannot put up a fence around the school, but you can shoot what we call an electrical fence line with the camera that will detect anybody going through that space. That could be a student leaving the campus, like a special needs student, uh, or it could be an intruder coming onto campus. That's left of bang. We pick up the problem. It's also training. Run, hide, fight doesn't teach you anything of what to do before the gun is produced. And I've never worked a shooting where somebody magically appeared with a rifle in a hallway shooting people. There sometimes it's very quick, but there are typically observable behaviors that witnesses describe. And they say, when we say, why didn't you do a lockdown or why didn't you evacuate? They say, well, I didn't see a gun because we're training them the wrong way. So it comes into training people how to recognize before the weapon is pulled, whatever that may be, before the car plows into a crowd of people so we can react. And, and this happens a lot, actually. A lot of otherwise imminent attacks are averted because somebody recognizes and reacts before the attack can be completed or even started. So then the next thing becomes where we've got such serious problems right now. Okay, now I'm in the attack. I, I didn't get to, you know, detect it and react before the person pulled the weapon, what have you. Um, you know, how do I react quickly? And that's where we need to see some big improvement in the current methodologies that are being taught. Now, with that, go back to technology. This is where we're seeing these, you know, duress button systems that really aren't that effective uh, once we're in that situation. And another example that we're very concerned about is the popularity of these phone apps. So what we find is the technology often works great, but when we sit uh, a person down and put, have them put their phone device in test mode and run scenarios, they can't operate the device, they push the wrong button. So they might, for example, under stress, uh, indicate tornado sheltering when you've got an active shooter. So now you got kids moving into the hallway in mass during a shooting, or they hit the active shooter button, which is much more common. They hit it for everything, medical emergency, they hit it for tornado. So now you've got kids uh, locking down in the classroom and a tornado hits the building is a concern. Now you've got all these 50 casualties. So there, you got to be careful because a lot of these technologies, again, look great. But and one thing we're very big on, and this is true with the other two we talked about. This is true for prevention uh, as well as preparedness. And now the topic, you know, your terminology protection is what we call fidelity testing. Now it takes a bit of time to explain that, but I've got audio podcasts that explain it. I've got some articles, but any organization can do this. You basically do a simplified version of what we do and you create a series of what we call all hazard scenarios, uh, something that could indicate you would, you would record uh, a person laying prone at a teacher's lounge or a lobby of a store, wherever, whatever type of organization. And you, you give, you know, very specifics on, you know, the type of breathing, heart rate, whatever. And so what you basically have is an unconscious person and you're giving them the information that they would use to decide, do I do CPR? Do I, you know, what, what do I do to react to this? You do that with tornado, if you're in a tornado prone region, an aggressive animal, a person with a knife, a person with a gun, a person jumping the fence, whatever those things are. And you run scenarios to test and then see if, are the people giving us back the answers we would expect or have we created training scars? 
So a real good example, we, we discover things all the time I would have never dreamed of. I would have never, you couldn't have convinced me that 90% of school employees in tornado prone states like Kansas, Texas, Indiana, Georgia, Tennessee, 90%, if we depict very specifically, you're outside with a group of children, you're 25 yards from a door that you can enter through key access control, what have you. And we explained that's one fourth of a football field in case they don't know what 25 yards looks like. And then we say, you see a tornado approaching at a distance of 10 football fields away coming toward the school. I would never have dreamed that 90% would forget to call the office. They don't call anybody. And a, a lot of them tell the students, say they would tell the students to lay down, misunderstanding those PSAs that tell us if we can't get into a structure, lay down. And then when we look at the 10% that say they would call someone, nine out of 10 of them say they would call 911. The result of that is going to be the principal can't shelter 800 kids in the elementary school because that's not going to get from the 911 center to the school. They're going to find out they got a tornado when it hits the building unless somebody else has seen it. And so fidelity testing lets us see what our people are likely to do. Will they follow our prevention procedures properly? If you give them a scenario of a, let's say for school, you give them a scenario of a student saying they're concerned about a friend. She's doing X, Y, and Z. And those are indicators. She's that person's suicide or some harm. Then we play that and see if the staff member now knows what to do with that information. Do they know who to take that information to in the organization? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, boy, this is so helpful, uh, Michael. Uh, uh, barriers. Can you kind of address, and I know some things you can't talk about the recent uh, recent ah. active shooter event, but uh, uh, can you talk to us about the use of barriers, door locks, anything that we need to know uh, about protection event happening? Uh, yeah, and this, this goes into the chart. You've got what lessons can we learn? And a big one I will tell you is consider everything you hear about a shooting like the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas attack, Columbine, Sandy Hook, the recent attack at Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Um, I tell people most of what you see reported in the media turns out to be either inaccurate or far less important than things that are not discussed. So the recent attack in Rob Elementary School has been a tremendous focus on the officers and how they responded. And I'm very concerned about the way that's playing out um, because when I look at that case, what my experience tells me, I have questions more than answers, but I know that the school used a very popular approach called the standard response protocol. I know it has consistently tested as one of the worst approaches we've tested. The, what we call the fail rate for staff not locking down is 90%. That means nine out of wow. 10 scenarios, they failed to lock down. It uh, didn't cause any injuries or deaths in the shooting, but it did fail in the uh, shooting we worked at Arapahoe High School in Colorado. Um, I've personally cautioned the Texas School Safety Center on the dangers of that and the individual who developed it. I've told them for many years about the test results we're seeing, even offered them to use our scenarios to test it. So I can't tell you that it caused fatalities are contributed to them, but it's got a very high fail rate. And I can tell you that we have pretty clear indications that there was a failure, two failures, the exterior door, which is still not clear 
whether that's a mechanical failure or a human failure, but it was clearly not locked. But we do know that the classroom door was not forcibly entered by the attacker. The teacher in an interview on TV said the door was standing open. Now this is based on what they've released so far with the video and the timeline from the DPS commissioner. That's four minutes after the shooting started outside the school and we've still got a door open. So there are indications that there were problems with the lock. Maybe the teacher knew the door wouldn't lock and didn't feel he should bother. But either way, I think what's gonna become the most important when the litigation occurs is gonna be you know, the, the failure to get those two doors locked, especially that classroom door. And what I tell people is there may, or, you know, there, I think there's ample reason to question the response by police. Uh, however, we really do not have enough information having worked a bunch of these to know uh, what effect that had on casualties. It is clear that some people were alive after the officer got there, but it's also clear that he fired over 100 rounds before any officer was able to get into that building. And then the shooting stopped. So what I tell people is we might not even be having the discussion about the police response if the school, you know, if something happened differently. Now that could be vendors. I'm not, and I'm, by the way, not, not faulting the teacher or even the staff in the district. If, if we are told that an approach is a good approach and we believe that we can have a problem with due diligence but it can also be fault on whoever's providing whatever that whether it's technology or what have you there's some other things i've noticed i'm not going to talk about but there are other vendors that may uh may have some culpability in this too so the bottom line is be very careful making judgments uh much of the information i'd say most of it that i've seen in the public forum on the shooting at marjorie stoneman douglas i find to be inaccurate and some of the most important things have never been talked about publicly. I'm under non-disclosure. We assess that district after the shooting, huge project. And so, and under Florida law, I can't discuss some of those things, but I'll just tell you that what you've heard about Sandy Hook, much of it is wrong. Uh, much of it still is wrong about what people think they know about Columbine. So be very careful about making changes, especially right after an event when most of the information will turn out to be incorrect and sometimes for years after. So be very careful. We should not be changing things dramatically because of any one attack. You better look at the attacks we've had going back into the 1800s when our first active shooter event in a school occurred in this country and look at that collectively because what might be a really good thing in one shooting could cause mass casualties in another. And that's why these, anything that's extremely simplified in an emergency preparedness approach is dangerous. If it has an acronym, uh, like, or a series of terms like run, hide, fight, it's probably too simplistic to address, I won't say probably it is, too simplistic to address the many variations we've seen in these attacks. Well, Mike, that's so terrific. And we're segueing into our final topic, which, which is you've really warned us about what's out there in the press and that kind of thing. And in our prior discussions and you mentoring us over the years with MedTech, you've really helped us to understand that organizations really need to customize their approach to their plant, their facility, the operations and the process. And there's no easy shortcut 
to really make things as safe as possible. So our fourth category is performance improvement. And our audience over the last 37 years and almost 290 minute recorded webinars that we've been delivering, um, uh, a majority of our, of our audiences are performance improvement experts. They're black belts. They've worked with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. They've worked with us with the LeapFrog Group, with hospitals. Many have been taught in the, in the tools of quality improvement, and that's this area of performance improvement. So now when we're thinking about a school or a medical center and we're, and we're, we're talking about now where do I go for the information to learn from these cases so that I can apply that information so that I can have a customized approach where do we get that information, Mike, that for performance improvement so that we can learn from what's going on and then constantly try to create an improvement loop? So I'm going to go back to what I talked about with fidelity testing. So fidelity testing is important to measure progress as well as to identify problems. And it's important to be able to document, look, we, we detected a potential risk. We did XYZ to try to prevent and prepare and protect. And now what we've done is we're not resting on that. We didn't just buy things and train people. Now we are testing the ability of human beings to use those things that we prepared. So when I talk about fidelity testing, what you're gonna get is very good measurement. And what you will find absolutely is you will find flaws. You will say, you know what? We need to explain this in our train. We need to add that to our train. We need to uh, you know, do this differently with this technology or what have you. Um, and then you document that. You should document that you found a gap and you addressed it, but you will also be measuring. And what you'll find out with uh, the use of scenarios is you'll get continual improvement because the first thing that happens when, when we run scenarios with, a, with an educator, they'll sit there and they'll go, wow, that 30 seconds is really fast. <laughs> you know, I didn't, it helps them understand, uh, you know, an ER doc knows that in certain situations, I've got seconds to make a decision. And it's like that with any, any professional that does life and death stuff on a regular basis is fast breaking pilots, uh, which I think you're a pilot, right? Yep. You, know, you, you better know how to do things. You, you can't pull out a big book, you know, when you're playing, if the engine goes down or something happens. Um, police officers, firefighters, the military, they all use scenario training. And then they all use scenarios to evaluate that person's ability and, and do, do these approaches work like we think they do. And by the way, that's a good way to vet technology is to test it that way. If somebody says, here's this emergency communication system, say, fine, let's train some of our people. Let me run some scenarios and see if they can actually use this thing before we spend a million dollars on it, right? Absolutely. And, and, and one of the expressions we use that uh, and we frequently use left of boom or left of bang, as you described, right. but also that we we don't rise to the level of our knowledge when we're stressed. We Correct. fall to the level of our training. And Correct. I think that Dr. Boats, if he were in this conversation right now, would be we fall to the level of our deliberative, regular training. We use a term, Mike, called uh, called uh, competency currency or currency of competency. And, okay. and as a pilot, you mentioned, I'm a jet pilot. I haven't flown for a while, but uh, you know, for my IFR instrument flight rule uh, training, I have to fly a certain number of approaches to remain legal. I'm, I'm certified, but I'm not legal 
unless I've had that recurrent competency currency. Correct. And, and, and that's you mentioned that earlier, and that's a really important point. You talked about it with hemorrhage control, but it's true with, you know, any of the emergency preparedness stuff for sure. Right. And, you know, one of the things that this approach does is it lets you document, lets you show, hey, we, we sought out the architects called problems. We looked for problems. We found some and saved that document that it didn't go like you thought and what you did about it. And then you retest. And say, okay, now we're more where we want to be. Understanding you're never going to get perfection with the types of things we're talking about. So, Mike, jumping in here, because you're, you're an expert witness in many of these legal cases. If, if our teams document that they are training and learning from something, and even if they fail during an event, but they've got a history of wanting to get better, documenting that they've been getting better, is that is that helpful in these cases? And it's helpful in litigation. It's powerful in litigation. And it's it's become even more important. What we're seeing with school shootings particularly is in the past, there were lawsuits often, but you didn't see this concerted, well-funded effort to remove people from their positions that we're seeing now. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, superintendents pressured into resigning, yeah. uh, attempts to remove an entire school board in, in Broward County because they wouldn't fire the superintendent, um, who, by the way, was an exceptional superintendent. They, they made mistakes. He's I've seen him in front of 1300 people take ownership for those. But, you know, that this movement now that we've got to, you know, the term accountability is used, but to me, it often looks like retribution. I understand to the extent somebody that hadn't personally lost a child, but I understand somebody who lost a police officer at my, you know, my failure as a police chief. Uh, I, I take that very, very uh, seriously. Um, but sometimes saying we're going to remove all these people <laughs> makes it worse, you know, and, and, and so that's, that's a type of reputation and organizational protection because it's hard to run your hospital university or K-12 district after some major event anyway. And, and I'm not saying that that's never called for it. it there are definitely cases where people should be uh, terminated and have been prosecuted for, for major failures. But I, it, it's, a, it's a more common situation now and often it's very destructive. And so what I would tell people is look, if you document that you found problems and then fix them to me, that's a very powerful tool to prove that you're really trying to make. And, and we're not expected to be perfect. We are expected to show that we made reasonable you know, decisions and efforts and so forth. And this type of documentation is very powerful because it gives you credibility. People are afraid to document that things didn't go well during a fire drill at a school. Well, that's if, if you document it, don't do anything about it, that's going to be problematic. But if you do what we're talking about, that continual effort to improve, you're going to show, hey, we found this, we did something about it, we, and then we went back and we retested. That, just think about, even though most cases are settled, never get near a jury, the attorneys think about what it will look like to a jury. Think about if you're on a jury, and let's take the school system, and you find out that they did training, they did drills, and then they did this fidelity testing, and they found problems, and they fixed it. And then the attorney looks at the jury and says, do they do that where you work? They're going to meet and go, and oh that, my gosh, and that's, that's part, and that's And that's part of the narrative. Uh, you know, again, I don't want to overcompliment you, but I don't think that we could, I don't think that we could thank you enough 
for drawing our attention to the other causes of death. So our final little bit of discussion here is regarding what we learned when you and I had the conversation now since 2015, and you said, I, everybody's focused on active shooter events, but Chuck, I'm out at these schools and we have people dying of sudden cardiac arrest. We have people that are dying of anaphylaxis with no EpiPen. There are people, and now my, you know, we've got a, over 270 deaths a day from opioid overdose and yeah. 60 to 80% yeah. are fentanyl. We're working on a PSA, working with college students right now to get the word out on counterfeit drugs and that kind of thing. But then also uh, the, the, other, the other issues of just plain choking and why the Heimlich maneuver could save a number of uh, people. And so our focus on the eight leading causes of death came from from your and my conversation. And I don't want to leave any of our leaders thinking, well, um, I'm not sure I have super clarity on what I could do tomorrow. Uh, Don Berwick uh, is uh, one of my mentors and one of the greatest, uh, I think, leaders in performance improvement we've ever had. He went on to become the, the head of Medicare and Medicaid uh, and uh, led an organization called the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And he taught us, what can I do by Tuesday? So, Mike, I want you to react to this and tell me if this is reasonable. If every leader that's on this program today, hearing the podcast, uh, listening to it, were to look at their facility and say, I need to have an automatic defibrillator and stop the bleed kits and the basic rescue gear within three minutes from drop to, from drop to shock, meaning three minutes to go get the AED, bring it back and shock somebody if they have a shockable rhythm for cardiac arrest, or three minutes from gunshot, from shot to stop the bleed, meaning three minutes to go get a, the, the stop the bleed kit and actually administer uh, severe bleeding control. If they just had those two things and even consider putting Narcan in such a rescue station like those that we're putting in schools and, and beaches, these are no brainers. This doesn't require listening to you and I talk for 90 minutes. This is, these are straightforward. If, if they have 24 seven, 365 access to automatic defibrillators, rescue gear that uh, could help with, with bleeding and, uh, and, and perhaps EpiPens or perhaps Narcan, but not necessarily have to have those. Isn't that fair to say that you, you, you're not gonna get, we, we know you're not gonna get sued for having them. We know you're gonna get sued for not having them. And it's a no brainer and very, very low cost to do. A fair statement to say what you could do by Tuesday? Yes. And, and you know, you often hear the, the terminology and I beg people not to say this because this, this can be a, a real liability for vendors, especially, but you often hear the gun violence epidemic. Well, you know better than I what definitions of epidemics are. And so we've, we've been you know, working the vaping situation, and that is an epidemic. To have a you know, school shooting or gun violence epidemic, we'd have, I'm trying to remember what we figured out, you'd have to have like 15,000 students murdered in a single year, which we've not had in the history of our country. And it'd have to be a sudden change, like the COVID situation, right? And you know, when we looked at extensively for the last two years on the vaping epidemic, and you start seeing, you know, teachers, you know, picking up a vape pen because two students are out and you know unconscious in a student restroom, and two teachers go down from fentanyl on the on the pen. We've had eleven kids go down on a bus, and so you know what people tend to see are the catastrophic, you know, the plane crash or the mass shooting, and that obscures those things. Like you know, we talk about the opioid epidemic and the the number of 
fatalities from it, it but it just doesn't garner the kind of coverage that say the shooting in Uvalde covered. I mean, that those, those things is like terrorism. We better not ignore them. And I'm not saying that active shooter is not a problem. It is, it's a concern. Right. Every public, non-public school in any country, we've worked in 24, it's a risk everywhere. Some countries it would be rare to have a shooting, but when you have 14 killed with a butcher knife, it's still a terrible event. You know, for the 192 killed, with a, a liter of fuel oil in the Korean subway attack a few years ago in Daegu. So, you know, I, what I tell people is, you know, let's be sure we're looking at that data and ask ourselves, is what we're doing only going to help for this really statistically rare event or what you just mentioned, we've ju you just covered a bunch and you didn't even cover all, right? I mean, you, you gave a few examples, but those, those what steps that you just talked about cover an awful lot and it doesn't have to be a mass casualty shooting for that to save lives or a life. And when you look at the data, you know, how rare fatalities are from active shooter compared to, you know, nine times more people killed, hit by vehicles in school parking lots and drive. I was just going to come up with that. And I got to tell you, had you not drawn our attention to the more than 100 drive over accidents on the driveways at home or in the on the school property, not motor vehicle accidents, y'all listening, over a hundred a week, four die, and over sixty percent are a parent or someone that the child knows. Uh, you know, Mike, I couldn't believe as a cancer doctor who thrives on statistics. I got to tell you, I could not believe it when I put, when you shared the data with me from uh, Saturday, and I went and looked up, and our team went and looked up all of them. I, I was shocked at how many deaths occur from choking from opioid overdose, from anaphylaxis compared to these, but the drive over was just shocking. And they're horrible events. I mean, oh, the terrible. school I went to, you know, you get these where like, if I remember correctly, the young fourth grader, I think was hit by a car, bounced under the tire of a bus and crushed in front of siblings. You know, that didn't make the national news, but those are horrible, un just unforgettable events to everybody involved. And when you say, well, that's, how many, you know, that's nine Columbines, you know, that, that, you know, when you, when you look at the, the data we're seeing and then the new data that Steve Satterley's the updated stage working on right now, it's even greater for medically for, for basically, yeah, they would be all medical situations, but fatalities from athletic events. It's even greater than the parking lot fatalities. Well, Mike, I got to tell you, uh, my son, who's now 16, he's a competitive surfer now in Scholastic Series. He's now in, he's in Costa Rica with the technical advisor to the Olympic team right now uh, practicing. And I will tell you, had you not drawn my attention to the sudden cardiac arrest issue, I wouldn't have tried to get our scout troop and our little football team of flag football players in for cardiac screening. I told my family, we've got to be good role models. Let's go in. Discovered a potentially fatal arrhythmia in my son. Two heart surgeries later, the first one failed, second one succeeded. You know, Mike, from our phone call, you, you, you could have potentially saved my son's life. Well, and you know, I, one of the reasons I do expert witness work is I learned so much. And I had a sudden cardiac arrest case in, in Texas. And in Texas, you know, there's probably about the tightest qualified governmental immunity. It's, all, it's very difficult to sue public amazing. school officials. It's amazing. Other yeah. than vehicle accidents and child molestation in Texas. And so in this case, it was very clear that multiple school officials really did not do well. 
but they sued a private contractor who was in a room while not suing the people that didn't use the two AEDs that were brought and so forth. And I was really taken aback listening to reading the, the deposition testimony from uh, one of the expert witnesses who was a physician who helps, I believe, write the standards for American Red Cross and so forth. And very well, he's a, what do you call it, pediatric cardiologist, very bright guy, very <laughs> heavy hitter in, in your field. And he was talking about things I didn't know, like they knew that they hadn't done CPR on this young man when the paramedics arrived, actually amazingly fast for Dallas. Um, they, they were on the scene and in the room in about nine minutes, which is much faster than they would typically be. In a big and city, they, yeah. It runs eight to 12 minutes without traffic. Well, and then not just getting to the school, but getting to the room where the patient is. A lot of people exactly. think an ambulance showing up is yeah. where you need them, right? And whether it's a casino or, or wherever you're at, the ambulance at the front door doesn't mean paramedics with the victim, as you know. So, you know, here, though, when the EMT was talking about she knew they hadn't done compressions because she was breaking you know, ribs. And when I'm, I'm looking at this school nurse not using CPR, she's CPR AD instructor. She uh, had worked as an ER nurse, very experienced nurse, um, but she didn't do compressions or use either of the two AEDs brought to her. And neither did a school district police officer who was AD CPR trained, nor I think two administrators. And, you know, but then as you find out, the nurse misread and thought he and hit him with an EpiPen, which was probably the worst thing she could do. But all these other people stood by and didn't, you know, because there, there's a nurse, right? And so we, you don't do this for litigation. I couldn't run scenarios to prove or disprove for that type of situation, but it made me realize, hey, I need to do this. And I was astounded when we took the exact, the, you know, what they determined about his heart and, you know, his breathing and so forth and wrote that as a scenario. I ran it in 20 different schools across the country. I had, I think, two people that, that said that they would start compressions or try to get an AED. These people were all trained in CPR AED. And they, yeah. but, you know, and so then the physician was talking about, you know, people not doing what they're trained to do. So, I mean, even very high quality training, which I can tell you, I've saved, I was thinking about this the other day, I, I failed the Red Cross lifeguard training so bad, they told me don't come back. I mean, I failed it. <laughs> I've never failed anything so bad in my life. And, and, they, they, they literally did tell me, don't come back. You're not going to make it. You know, I was not a big guy and all that. But I've saved three people from drowning using what they taught me, even though I failed. So, you know, this is obviously very good training, but it goes back to what you say about the need for retraining and refreshing those skills. And what I say about fidelity testing, because a lot of our schools now, what we suggest is they do AED drills and they do them using, uh, you know, the, the CPR, you know, dummies if you use the right term. And we tell them, you know, this is Fred. If Fred is lying prone, here's what you should assume. Yeah. And you put Fred out and ideally in front of a security camera and see what the first person that comes upon them does, whether they're trained or not, do they go get help, you know, so forth. And I've had a very prestigious, very good uh, 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 independent school up in Charlotte that they started doing that. And they saw some things like you talk about the three minute window. And they had a, a young man go down on a, on a field and they saved him. And they told me we wouldn't have saved him if we hadn't done that testing. And we realized several things. So they were able to get the AD uh, on him in under one minute. And they said, 
we could tell it would have been more like four minutes before we tested that. Does that make sense? So, I mean, you know, that, that the terminology used about self-improvement and measurement, I think it's so important, even when you get exceptional programs. And that would have invaded the window for organ death at that four minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mark, right? yeah. So, they, 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 yeah. And, and I think, it, you know, so the, and then the, the, the other part of just the availability of this stuff, Mike, is that we go mm -hmm. back to the O'Hare airport where they have between 20 and 24 sudden cardiac arrests, but they have AEDs every 90 seconds in O'Hare airport, a million people flow through there, but you know, they've got over a 70% save rate and not by any staff, they're by bystanders. And, right. you know, when you look at King County up in uh, Seattle, their cardiac success rate is so much higher than the, the average. We have to count it differently than the rest of the cities in America because they've really distributed AEDs and FCPR out there. So Mike, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think we've given some direct actionable, just in, in recap, you've been so helpful to help us understand that we're at the beginning of the beginning, but that there are things that we can do by Tuesday. And that's where our leaders need to get engaged. They need to get involved. We, we now need to apply our triple T, time, talent, treasure. Uh, and if they were to put rescue stations in and have the concomitant training you'd need to have to use them, it would be a reasonable start. Is that a fair statement? I'd say more than that. I'd say it's a, it's a data-driven approach that is more than, is above reasonable. You know, there, there are certain areas where we say, you know what, here's legal standard of care but I'd exceed that. We're that way with AEDs. We, we, we suggest you have more than you're required to. It just makes a lot of sense. When, when you look at how many saves we're aware of, and we're by far not aware of all of them. I mean, I don't think anybody has accurate data. Uh, I just know Alabama, there was a guy that donated them to a whole school district, didn't even have kids, and they saved two lives in two weeks. You know, Crazy. And that's the, you know, we have... The, the rescue station we put at the beach where I live, uh, that was my son's Eagle Scout projects, already had two, one documented save and possibly a second in less than a year. So, it, so the numbers are really there. Well, listen, Mike, thank you very much. Thank you for your passion and your intelligence, your expertise and what you're doing to keep our, our schools and our community safe. We can't thank you enough. Well, my pleasure. And thanks, Doc. I really appreciate the work you're doing and your team. Take care. All right, sir. Uh, we'll go to uh, you first, uh, Chief Adcox. Your reaction to what you've heard uh, up to this point from Michael, he's almost done. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I, I will say that just real real briefly to, to echo a lot of what he has talked about, but I do think that he's correct that you have to have fidelity testing. You've got to audit and you've got to test your systems on a regular basis and make sure that they're working and that you're improving. Uh, consistent improvement is important. I also think that that you have to have um, uh, consistency and 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 documentation of how you're doing these things, so that so that you can bring it back to the right people to make sure. One of the things I don't think that we talked about yet that that was that is important in schools. We talk about locking the classrooms, we talk about locking the exterior doors, things like that. But inside of hospitals and stuff, we we often recommend and talk about safe rooms having specific places because you're not going to have the masses of so many people in one room, but, but there could be a, a case where specific safe rooms and we won't go into a lot of detail on those, but that's, that is another technique in a hospital setting it might be different than elsewhere. I know they use it in a lot of executives in corporate America offices, but that, but I do think that that's important. Last thing I'll say is you can't train enough. And one of the things that, 
as Mike pointed out, these canned approaches uh, and simple, simple approaches, and they all want either a 30 minute training or an online. The problem is, is that you're not teaching critical thinking. You're not teaching individuals that there could be multiple scenarios or things coming at you any given time where you, you may have to go, instead of run, you may have to, you may have to go to hide or whatever. So you got to teach critical thinking, which I think is an important uh, component. And, and I'll turn it back over to you. So Paul, uh, anything that you heard that you want to underscore or reinforce? Just uh, when we talk about tipping points, uh, those are points when our choices are narrowed down quickly, the point of no return. And we teach our people that even though you got a plan, you have to have a backup plan and alternative plans. As General Dwight Eisenhower said, plans seldom survive contact with the enemies. Plans seldom survive contact with the enemies. That was, that was taken to street language by Mike Tyson when he said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So I just want to close with that. Even though we have all these plans, they it may not go as you plan, and you have to be prepared for that. Thank you. And I think that reinforces during this stressful time when something is happening, we don't rise to the level of the last webinar. We fall to the level of the last practical training. And mm -hmm. I can tell you, uh, I'm still calm, although I'm so prayerful and thankful that my son survived last night. But I was totally calm uh, doing the Heimlich maneuver and knew what I was going to do as the next step. But it was only because we teach it. We teach MedTech every month. We're teaching kids and adults. We're doing Heimlich and practicing Heimlich every, every week, every other week. And so it was just natural. Didn't even give it a thought. But if I hadn't done Heimlich in a year or two, or it was only one time a year, I think it would have been a different game. Randy. Yeah, just on a couple of things, um, you know, it sort of ties into uh, what you've been talking about with the, 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 the horrifying incident with your with your son, uh, Chuck, is, you know, I had a, a situation where I was in a pizzeria in Chicago where I had to do the uh, uh, a choking rescue on, on a young girl, and it was the same, I didn't have to do the high, like the, the back blows on the fifth black low, I was able to dislodge the piece of pizza she was choking on, but I, 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 you know, going back into kind of the conversation that we're talking about, first of all, and you know, in terms of uh, uh, the planning, as uh, Chief Cross, you know, kind of kind of alluded to, you know, plans have to be you know high level. They cannot be in the weeds. They can't be you know these these incredibly detailed plans. Otherwise, they never work. There's nothing wrong with having plans, and we should all have plans. But all, like I've always said, plans have to be flexible. They have to be adaptable, and they have to be scalable. And they have to be really more of a a conceptual thing, and not a every single detail because that's when you know these highly detailed plans those are the more details you have the more likely that something is going to go off the rails because it's not going to go like you planned but turning going back to um you know the, the training and the, the the methodology that we teach people you know i, I while i agree that that absolutely you know that, that we can always improve on ways to to train people to think about you know, what to do in these situations. I agree with things like run, hide, fight, because that is simple. That's something that people remember. Now, is that tell people everything to do in these situations? No, absolutely not. But like we do, the reason that you were able to remain calm last night, the reason I was able to, to, to perform that procedure on that young girl in that pizzeria was because 
we don't teach people first aid by the numbers. We do. We tell them what to do, A, B, C. But what we're really going for in those first aid, stop the bleed types trainings, are those concepts. We teach people the concept of what to do to say, you know, in this situation, we need to, you know, take some kind of action. But people don't remember in stressful situations like a choking incident or like when guns are going off in a classroom. What do I do? The ABCs that they remember, what are the exact steps in the process? So having these simple kind of ideas like run, hide, fight um, to get people oriented to thinking about things and to, 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 to you know, giving them the skills. And uh, like Chief Adcock said, that, you know, the, the ability to react in those situations, um, I think is a good thing to do. But, you know, the, obviously there's no, no perfect situation because every one of these situations is different. But if we continue to teach people, first of all, the awareness, the, the fact that it can happen when you walk into a classroom, take a look around and find your exits and do things like that. But also remember the concepts of what we're trying to teach them when, you know, a situation like this happens and, and how to protect themselves. I think you bring up a really good point of situational awareness, Three, looking, doing a quick 360. I'll never forget uh, when I met with Dr. Boats at Texas Medical Center when I was uh, uh, advising the Texas Medical Center and putting together a re research program, and he came up to have lunch. And the very first thing he said after he observed where I was was he said, where are the AED signs and where are the exits? You know, it, it was just, you know, kind of an, and that's the natural thing we do as pilots when we sit in the cockpit and realize that we can't rely on memory and that we rely on on those things. So uh, a few takeaways, gentlemen, just want to have you guys react quickly and then we'll go back to Michael Dorn, but and we'll finish up. Uh, and for those that can stay on, uh, you'll be able to listen uh, longer and be able to hear the, the complete final message on performance improvement and uh, this address uh, addressing these eight leading causes of emergency uh, deaths that, uh, that Good Samaritans can address. But, um, uh, you know, the takeaway after listening to Michael, talking with him, editing uh, his, his commentary, some big takeaways that I had was off the shelf is not the way to go. Right now, our leaders need to say to be engaged, they need to be, uh, focus time, talent and treasure on the customized approach test, 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 you know, he really helped us understand what are the scenarios that might happen at your institution, the configuration at Anderson's emergency department is going to be dramatically different than yours is at UCI, Randy, you know, uh, uh, you've got one of the best chairman of, of emergency medicine in the country, 80 beds in your, in your emergency department, I've been to the emergency department at Anderson, I trained there, and those are for cancer patients, you can't take some off the shelf. Here's what we do with an active shooter in the emergency department, right, Paul and, and, and Chief Adcox? You really need to fine tune time, talent, and treasure your scenario, your people, but then train, train, train. The one takeaway I got from listening to Michael three or four times to make sure to edit this properly was that, that he said, you learn so much from the simulation training. If you document what you learned and you try to fix it, that's like a bulletproof vest when you go to court. If you have a bad environment and you've shown, look, we did our best, we did scenario training, we were doing it regularly, we learned some things, we tried to fix some things, that narrative to a, uh, to, to a jury is a big deal. Chief, your thoughts on that as we kind of wrap up about scenarios, customization, and leaders getting engaged. Nothing off the shelf seems like it's gonna work just right off the shelf. Is that a fair statement? 
Well, let me say this. I think these are good concepts. What's the term run mean? Well, it simply means if, do your, if you can get away from the, the shooter, it might be through a different exit. It might, be, it might be that you hear a shot and you go the opposite direction. That's going to be the priority is, is to get away. So, so yes, in concept, they're, they're great. But you have to narrow those. You have to go into your environment and take a look at it and say, okay, if this is happening at this area, this is where the scenarios come in. This is what we do. This is what we do. It takes time and it's very difficult to do sometimes. But that's what you have to do. Uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a criti- I'm a critical thinking person in terms of what we teach people. You got to be on your feet. You got to be able to make some decisions because situations happening at that time are going to be very unique to where you're at and what's going on. So, so yeah, I, I do think that what we're talking about is very powerful. We just need to need to give people some tools, let them practice the tools, let's bring them in, make sure that we 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 shoot some different scenarios. What we do is we actually go up to very small areas. We go up to to a ward, to 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 a floor. A certain area, and we just pull them in and say, "Okay, this is what happened." We give them the scenario on the spot. We give them a two pager. They got to go through it. And then we sit down. We debrief. We talk about it. Okay, what if this changed? What if that happened? Where's where's your panic button? Where's this? And we walk them through these things so that they can do it real time in real life. They'll know. I'm not advocating that for everybody, but it, but those are some of the things we do so the employees are engaged. And then we go back and we retest it, retest it over periods of time, but it takes time and effort. There's changes going on all the time. You cannot do a one and done. You cannot come up with this plan and think it's great. You, you, you've got to continuously be putting it out there and asking those questions. And it's, so it's going to be, it's, like you said, it's going to be time consuming and it's going to be time, it's going to be treasure, and it's going to, and it's going to be just a tremendous amount of, of work. But it has to be done. Well, Chief, uh, thank you for being the kind of role model that we really need across the country. You've been just uh, constantly that kind of leader, the kind of leader that we're hearing from Michael we need. Somebody engaged, always learning. Oh, and thank you for being the pathfinder in threat, emerging threats. Paul and Randy, your, your thoughts regarding what we can do by Tuesday. You know, Don Berwick taught me, what can you do by Tuesday? And the one takeaway you'll hear at the end, through the end of the uh, program, if you can't hang in there, is stop the bleed is evidence-based. It's the one thing that he said that, uh, that uh, all the way through and in our conversations and CPR and AED. So basically, you know, those of you that are on the, that are on today that are a faith-based organization, a school, a a, a park, uh, or a, a medical center, frequently we don't have stop the bleed kits close enough to save somebody's life within three minutes. Frequently we don't have AEDs and CPR uh, rescue gear. We're all working towards it, but that's something we can do right away. Your thoughts, Paul, what could we do by Tuesday? And Andy and uh, Randy, uh, wrap up there. I know you're doing that right now uh, at UCI. Paul. Uh, quickly, just uh, we need to practice with what we're used to. I watched the World Track and Field uh, games the other night and watched one of the world's greatest sprinters have difficulty get out, getting out of the blocks. And when he pushed back the start at the starter's guns, the, the, the block slipped out from under him. Why? Those were blocks he had never used before. And he didn't have time to practice there. So that's the important point about that is practice for your environment with the tools you're used to using and that you feel comfortable with, just like David did. Awesome. Randy, what can we do by Tuesday? And you're doing it right now. Stop the bleed kits, AEDs, getting them in the right place. Is that right? Yep, getting them out there and and you know getting those stop the bleed kits distributed around campus and um, you know getting people 
familiar with them, but also, you know, going back to those concepts and saying, you know, okay, the stop the bleed kit is a tool, but it's not the only tool. If we understand the concept behind the stop the bleed kit, you can pull off a belt and make it into a tourniquet. I learned how to do that in the Marines. We didn't carry around tourniquets back in the late 80s. We carried around our, our web belts that we were trained to use as a tourniquet. We can take uh, those concepts. You know, you can we can put door blocks, and we're in the process of doing that into our classrooms, doing assessments of classrooms and figuring out how people can keep those doors from being able to open. But in the meantime, if you know that you need to secure that door in an active shooter event, you can pull your belt off or some other object and you, you can, there are ways to secure that door. So, you know, we teach people on the equipment, obviously we want to teach people how a South the Bleed Kit works and what's in there, but we also want to remember to teach those concepts and say, if you don't happen to have a Stop the Bleed Kit, there are still things you can do based on the concepts you learned in your Stop the Bleed training. And Randy, I just want to compliment you guys at UCI. We work hand in glove with you all, and uh, we're so proud of the fact that your EMT club actually has trained more than 1,500 people in Stop the Bleed. Can you do it? Absolutely. Does it cost money? It's almost zero cost to be able to do the training. We do it all the time for free. We love training it. We love doing it. So these are things we can do by Tuesday. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll thank you. And uh, if not, uh, we'll be wrapping up with these rescue stations and, and wrap up with, uh, with, uh, uh, with Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chad.